Grace to you and peace from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, This weekend, we are beginning a new series uh, for the new year entitled Breaking Free, and we're going to be exploring what it means uh, to live out the identity that Christ has called us to, this freedom uh, for which He has set us free. As I was getting ready to kick off this series this morning, I was thinking about all of the times, uh, usually on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, as much as I can, I get to play with some of our kids outside at recess on the playground. And there's one young friend, I don't know if he's in second or third grade here at St. Peter, but he loves to play one-on-one tag with me, which is a lot of fun, (laughs) right? Although he has a a certain rule, which means uh, whenever I tag him, sorry, other way around, whenever he tags me, he gets the count of three million before I get to chase him and try to tag him again, which seems like it would be to my advantage because it would give me all the time in the world, except for he counts by millions. So it's really just counting to three. But maybe you love the game of tag. You know how you chase someone down, and if you're lucky, you get to tag them, and they're it. Or maybe you've played the version called freeze tag, where you get to tag them, and then they get stuck in that motion until someone comes and sets them free. There's all sorts of games like that. I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite childhood memories was around Thanksgiving time. Maybe I was in that maybe 8 to 10 or 12-year-old range, and all of my dad's side of the family came, and we were outside. It was one of those warm Thanksgivings, and we were playing this game, I don't know if you know this, called uh, uh, Bloody Murder. It sounds grotesque, but it has nothing to do with actual murder. What you do is kind of like ghosts in the graveyard in reverse. You send somebody out, and they're the one that you have to run from, and you're secure in the base until you run out and try to find them. You can never come back home and find safety and security until you find the culprit, the bloody murderer, and you try to run for your life so you don't get tagged and get caught. There's something about these games that we love, about freedom and being captured. Uh, Most of us by God's grace, have never experienced what it means to actually be in bondage, enslaved, especially in the sense of our uh, terrible history in America and in places like South Africa during the period of apartheid where there was systematic racism and slavery that was enforced by the powers in place. But we'd like to explore what it means to enjoy freedom. The next thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about how we could get started thinking along this line was a movie my family and I have been watching through. We've been going through the Harry Potter series. We're getting ready next week. Sarah's parents celebrate their 45th anniversary, so they're taking us to Universal, which is super cool, and we're going to get to go to Harry Potter World. Not sure if you're Harry Potter fans or if you know this character. His name is Dobby, right? And he is a house elf who comes to cause all sorts of mischief, it seems, but ultimately to help our hero, Harry Potter. There's only one problem. He is a slave to his master, the Malfoys. That is, until uh, Harry surreptitiously slips a sock into a book, which Malfoy then gives to him, and in this way gives him his freedom. And in that famous moment, Dobby discovers this sock, and he declares Dobby is free. There's great joy, there's life when we experience freedom. And we want to talk today not about in a game or not about in a movie, but actually what does freedom look like for us 
as followers of Jesus. So we're going to begin today where Pastor Chuck read a moment ago from John chapter 8, starting in the middle of the chapter at verse 31, where Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people interested in him, some of whom had come to believe in him, but as we'll see, others who still did not. And so Jesus said to the Jews in that crowd that day who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That verse and that phrase in particular right there is pretty well known, uh, even among secular society today. For example, if you were to go to the CIA building, never been there myself, but I'm told right there on the ground as you enter in, it's written there in stone, the truth will set you free. Or if you're an Iowa State fan, apparently on the library at Iowa State, amongst a bunch of other statues, is this phrase written on the library itself, the truth will set you free. A bunch of other universities have this as their theme and motto, but the CIA and Iowa State, I think, have something else in mind when they say the truth and freedom. Maybe it's freedom from fear, freedom from uh, danger, The freedom Christ is talking about here, and the source of it is something else altogether and something else far more important. For Jesus, later on, John 14 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the freedom he offers is freedom that lasts for forever. Now, what's interesting is in the moment, Jesus says this, and some in the crowd uh, took issue with it. Verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, if you're students of your Bibles, and I know many of you are, and if you're aware at all of the Old Testament history of the Jews, you might say to yourself, these people are either terribly misinformed or they're just forgetting pretty much their whole history. Because the Jews found themselves for 400 years enslaved in Egypt. And then after being returned to the promised land, they found themselves in captivity to the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and now they were under the rule of the Romans. It's like their whole history has been one marked by freedom and captivity. Maybe something else is going on in their minds right now. Maybe there was more to this misunderstanding. Maybe there was some deliberate deception at play from someone and somewhere. Jesus understands that in this moment, there's something more at play than a question of historical accuracy. In fact, there is a deliberate battle over identity directed first at him and then ultimately at all of us as well. So jumping forward a little bit in our text in verse 41, Jesus says to them, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now again, if you don't understand the context of this, you might just kind of glide over this. But remember, we're just a few weeks after Christmas. And on first Christmas, Uh, what was painfully obvious to Mary and Joseph, and then probably familiar to most of the people in their community, is that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. And for the rest of his earthly life, 
I'm certain that there were questions swirling in the community about his paternity and who his father truly was. And so as I read this, I see this as an underhanded, sinister jab at the identity and the paternity of Jesus. They're saying, we know who our father is, but everyone knows, no one knows who your father is. But Jesus, secure in his identity and aware of his paternity, that is, his heavenly father who had sent him from all eternity, has something more to say to these who are deceived. Verses 42 and 44 go on to say, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. But notice how sharp and how aggressive he gets in his diagnosis and his attack. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do what your father desires. Notice how Jesus never shies away from pointing out the painful when it needs to be made obvious. These who were working against him were doing the work not of the heavenly father, but of the devil. And what are his hallmark traits? He says he was a murderer from the beginning. and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he's speaking out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Just think back for a moment. For the first time in human history when someone's life was lost... How did it happen? Cain and Abel, Cain, deceived by the devil, caught up in his pride, kills his brother. The first loss of human life was a murder. And wind back your clocks a few steps further. What was the first sin? The serpent in the tree saying to Adam and to Eve, did God really say, causing them to doubt the truth and the trustworthiness of God? Lies and murder from the very beginning and all the way to this day are the hallmark works of the devil. And in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus goes on to say even more clearly, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But what is the hallmark of the evil one? The thief. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Or as I like to say it differently, there are kind of four D's to the hallmarks of the devil. He comes to distract and to discourage and to divide and to destroy. And whenever you see anything that looks like that, you know from whence it has come. To distract, discourage, divide, and destroy, the thief seeks to come and do these things. But Christian, also you need to know the hallmarks of your Savior. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will what? He will be saved. He'll go in and out and find pasture. Think of the good shepherd or Psalm 23 who leads us beside still waters and into green pastures where we can find rest and what we need to thrive. Verse 10, I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. There couldn't be a more clear contrast between the works of the evil one and the works of our Savior. The works of the evil one seek to come to distract, discourage, divide, and destroy, to ultimately lead through lies and murder and deception, humankind into the worst of the worst. But Jesus says, have no fear, little flock, for I have come to win a victory over all of this. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
So jumping back then to our story from John chapter 8, Jesus answers the question, how can we have this freedom if we've never actually been enslaved? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now you may have noticed uh, up on top of my slide, I point out this is from the ESV translation. Many of you use different translations of the Bible. That's awesome. They all give you different angles on the original text. If you were to read in the NIV, the way this is translated is, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's an acceptable translation of it, a little easier to read, but it misses a nuance in the original Greek where Jesus uses a particular phrase, not just the verb to sin, but the verb to commit or take action and to do a sin, to practice sin. It seems like it's has more in mind than an inadvertent and accidental mistake that we might make, and all of us are guilty of that. And it seems like he has more in mind the deliberate action that we do or say even when we know we shouldn't. It's that willful disobedience, it's that habit, that custom of doing what we know is less than God's best, even when we know it hurts. Satisfies at first maybe, but it always leads to regret. And Paul, in Romans chapter 7, perhaps most clearly describes this inward struggle. Starting at verse 8, he says, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. He's talking about the commandment, thou shalt not covet, right? He says, produces me in every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Right? In verse 9 and 10, he goes on to say, once I was alive apart from the law, I didn't really know what God's best was and what his clear expectations were, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Right? This is the devil's ploy. He seeks to twist, to distract, to confuse us around what is God's best, and when we settle for the lie, we suffer the loss. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Notice the parallels there between how Jesus described the work of the devil, the father of lies, deceiving, leading to murder and death. Friends, make no mistake, this is the aim and the pattern that we should be paying attention to in the works of the devil and our own sinful flesh that seeks to ally itself with him. So what are we to do? Paul concludes, so then I find myself in my mind a slave to God's law. I know what I should do. I, I've been taught the Holy Scriptures, but in my flesh, my own sinful nature, that's another way to say it, I find myself a slave to this law of sin, constantly going back to what I know I shouldn't do, settling for less than God's best because it seems easier in the moment. But thanks be to God, there is a way out. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads to chapter 8, which says, Now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from this law of sin and death. Friends, we may struggle with this inner battle. We may sometimes stumble and deliberately even do what we know we shouldn't do, but God doesn't leave us in our brokenness, sin, and shame. He has come to set us free. And so he has condemned sin in the flesh, that is, in his own flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, not by us, but by him in us, because we do not live anymore according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
The mind that is governed by the flesh, that is our own sinful nature, it is leading to and ultimately ends in death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to its law, nor can it do so. But the mind governed by the flesh is death. And the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Friends, that was what Jesus has called us to. That is what he promises and delivers to all who trust in him. And so if Christ is in you by baptism or by hearing the word and coming to faith, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, we still live in this tension, in this struggle, in this world because of sin. The Spirit gives life as a gift. He gives it freedom, freely and abundantly through the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Friends, we will continue to exist in this struggle. But as Paul goes to in verse 11, if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Friends, this is not only a promise about a forever better, right, a time where you will be finally set free through death and entering into the presence of God by spirit, and then also through resurrection, your body's made perfect for forever. But this is also a present reality that you can access and enjoy. If this same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you, then all the power of resurrection life is yours today. You do not need to settle for less than God's best. For as Jesus says, a slave has no place, a permanent place in the family, but a son or daughter, a sister or brother, a child of God, that is you, dear friends. You belong forever. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if this this freedom is what Christ has called us to, if this is the battle that he has won and accomplished for us, what does it look like for us to live out this identity? What I'd like to do to close today is show you three slides And they're going to have a list of verses on them. Here is the first one. And three key words. Uh, Pro tip, if you want to remember these, get out your phone right now. If you're at home, you can grab your phone, take a screenshot of these. You can use them later on in the week. And I just want you to dwell on them and seek to identify as one of these words or one of these verses speaking to you most today. In Christ, because of this new identity that you have, you are accepted. John 1 verse 12 says, I am a God's child. John 15 verse 15, I am more than that. I am Christ's friend. He likes me, wants to spend time with me. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, I belong to God. I'm his possession. He has purchased and won me with his own blood. Or in Colossians chapter 1, I have been redeemed bought back. I have been rescued. I have been restored. In Colossians chapter 2, I am complete in Christ. There's nothing more he needs from me. He is satisfied with me and delights to live in and with me. In Christ, I am accepted. Second key thought, in Christ, I am secure. I had to make my fonts a little smaller because I had too many words to fit on the screen, but I think you can read them, right? Romans chapter 8, we just heard about this. I am free from condemnation. 
I'm not defined by my worst mistake or my biggest regret. I'm a child of God. I am secure. At the end of chapter 8, I can't even be separated from his love. There's nothing on this planet, nothing in all creation that can separate me from his love. It's that strong. Or in Philemon chapter, or Philippians chapter 3, I am a citizen of heaven. Right? My eternity, rock solid, secure. Hebrews chapter 4, I can find grace and mercy in any time of need. I know where to go. I know whose I am. Because in 1 John chapter 5, we're told we are born of God. And notice this, the evil one can't even touch me. That's how strong and secure your identity is in Christ. Third one, in Christ, I am significant. Right? I matter. I have value both in this world and for forever. John 15 says, I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. 1 Corinthians 3, God says, I am his temple. That is, he wants to dwell within me. Not just one place on the planet, but every human gets to be the presence of God in this world. And then he invites us to join with him in bringing hope and healing to the world. We are God's co-workers in his redemption story. Ephesians 2 says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. That seems strange because we're also seated in pews here at church and at home, but Paul's saying both are true at the same time. Right? That's how significant we are. We get a place with him. And last but not least, Ephesians 3, I may approach God then with freedom and confidence. He says, ask me for whatever you want, and if it's according to my will and if it's best for you, I'm going to give it to you. But like a father gives good gifts to his children, I'm not going to give you anything less than my best. So we trust God's discretion. Friends, you are enough. You're accepted. You are safe and secure in Jesus Christ, and you matter more to him than you could ever hope or dream. You are significant. That's who we are. That's what freedom truly means. That's where we begin to experience the life that is full and filled with his blessing. To close today then, I'd like you to reflect on this. This is what we call here in practice. Most of you are used to this now. It's a way for you to reflect on what Jesus says to you in this moment and then seek to put it into practice. If you're on your own, you can just think what comes to mind. If you're with someone, we'd love for you to lean over and share what comes to mind. Which of those three words, accepted, secure, and significant, feel the most like good news? Or which one of those passages maybe stood out for you today and why? Secondly, who do you know that needs to hear some good news? We invite you to pray for them right now by name. Matthew will play some music to kind of help set the mood. Pastor Chuck will get communion ready. But we invite you not to rush on to the rest of the service or the rest of your day, but to spend some time with Jesus, listening to him and seeking to put into practice whatever he calls you to do. We invite you to hear in practice time.